the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Are you looking for truth from God's Word that you can understand and apply to your life? You'll find it today on Make It Clear with Dr. Stan Pons. Listen now as Stan makes it clear. Well, today's message, I hope in a small way, will actually speak to that issue because it's called having spiritual success in your life. Maybe some of you right now are facing some big decisions in your life and you're at the brink of something really, really great. But you know that in order for you to embrace that greatness, that new opportunity, that you want to make sure that you handle it in a biblical fashion and you want to know, how do I handle that? Some others of you, and probably more of it, I would be in this camp, sometimes we don't really take time to self-evaluate until we're on the brink of something that could be very disastrous, something that could be very, very challenging. Maybe a comment from our doctor, or we heard something from our accountant, or some other issue comes up that we hear about us, and we kind of really begin to tremble a little bit, and that gives us an opportunity to really dig deep and to do some self-evaluation, and I call that, that we're on the brink of that. Now, sometimes when we face these, some people, they can really look at it and they hear this challenge that they have and they look at life and they know God's a God of everything but not of this and they got confusion and that sours people. And then they live the rest of their life really blaming God and trying to make sense out of this in the flesh but never see it from a biblical point of view. Others, though, when they see this, they go back to the Bible, they lean on the Holy Spirit, they trust God and they don't sour, they really soar because they made the right choice. Well, today's message is not on how you can be successful with your finances or in your marriage or as a family or whatever it might be. The title of today's message is called How to Be a Success as a Spiritual Success in Your Life. So you want to mark that down. I want to talk about how do you become spiritually successful no matter what might be facing your life. Many, many years ago, America really produced, I think, one of the greatest preacher evangelists of the time. He's quite common, and his name was George Whitfield. I had the privilege of going to where George Whitfield preached his last sermon. It was in Newburyport. And when he died, as the custom was in the early 1800s, the preacher then would be literally, this is not a joke, would be buried beneath the pulpit from where he preached his last sermon. So I went to the church and I asked him, is that true? He's really buried in this curator of the church, Park Church in Newburyport, says that's true. So I went, he took me down to this dusty, moldy basement and underneath was a small little area where George Whitfield was buried. But George Whitfield had a friend who happened to be one of America's great statesmen at the time by the name of Benjamin Franklin. But George Whitfield, wanting Benjamin Franklin, his friend, to not only have success in the world but to have spiritual success, wrote him. And I really appreciate the fact that George Whitfield knew where spiritual success came from and how important it was that he took a stand with his friend Benjamin Franklin. And here's what he wrote, and I put it there for you in your worship outline. It goes like this. I found, find that you grow more and more famous in the learned world as you've made such progress in investigating the mysteries of electricity. I now humbly urge you to give diligent heed to the mystery of the new birth. 
that whole topic of the new birth is what I'll be preaching on this morning from John chapter 3 verses 1 through 15 and I invite you to join me hopefully in your own Bible and I urge you to bring your Bible every week. Now this passage has been preached on so many times that for Christians they often go into their yawn mode because they've really heard it. But I have to tell you that I've gone into this passage and the Holy Spirit and through the study has brought out some insights that so spoke to me on being a spiritual success that I wanted to share these with you. Now for some of you, let me give you different ways you could approach this passage that might be very practical for you. The first way is you could look at it as Jesus Christ is speaking to an unsaved person, particularly a Jewish person, particularly one who is a, an intelligent leader of the Jews, and watch how Jesus presented what we'll call the gospel, the plan of salvation to him. And you can extrapolate from that illustration what he did, and you might learn how to witness to a Jew. A side note might very well be to you that when you do witness to Jewish people, although I've helped provide for you how to do it in the Old Testament because that's their writing, you're going to see how Jesus used the Old Testament at witnessing to Jewish people, sharing the faith of Christianity with them so you can learn something. On the other side, there could be those of you that are listening to me today, and you might be more like Nicodemus in some special way of your own. And I want you to listen to the passion that the Lord has for you and how he might cast down some of the wrong reasoning and thinking that you have and point you to himself and what it's necessary to engage him for all eternity. And then for others of you that got all that together already, you're here because you came for some deep theology. I would like you to know that if you pay attention, you're going to hear a doctrine we would call it soteriology. That's the doctrine of salvation in probably a nutshell, we might say. Condensed fashion, but it'll be the doctrine of salvation. So you can go away with a deeper level of your own understanding of biblical doctrine. So I hope that'll help you. But others are just here to say, I'm on the brink of, my, of something in my life, and I want to make sure that I make the right spiritual decision so I can have spiritual success in my life. Not success, but spiritual success in my life. With all that being said now, I want to give you the rest of the quote that, that George Whitfield said to Benjamin Franklin that is not in your notes. It goes like this. Investigate this mystery, Benjamin, of the new birth. It is a most important and interesting study, and when mastered, will richly repay you. And I would like to say that all of you that have heard this message before on the new birth, that you would reinvestigate this for the mysteries of it go farther than I have time to present today. And I promise you, you will be richly paid for that investigation, for that's how you'll even know the Lord better. Would you like to open your Bibles now to John chapter 3? And I'm going to read to us verses 1 through 15. I'm going to read it a little bit more rapidly because I'll unpack it as we go through the message. But I want you to follow along so you see it in its totality, and then I'll break it up for you. Beginning at verse 1, here's where it starts. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, 
but do not know where it comes from and where it is going, so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. And Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? And Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept the testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. What a great passage of Scripture, and I ask the Lord to really take His Word and really inspire all of us to bring us closer to Him. But I want to talk a little about how to have spiritual success, and I'm going to provide you in a little six-point outline. And if you don't get all these little points, don't worry about it, because we're still going to go through the Scripture and learn what it has to say. But for those of you that would like to maybe see a, a skeleton of this, you can follow with your little outline. The first one is we need to evaluate our definition of success in our life. Some people will define our success for us. Some of us have a parent that will set up a particular set of standards and says, if you do this, then you'll be successful. Others will just kind of get lost because they don't have parents and they'll let movies and television stars define our success. Others that are usually guys, not always, will go into the sports arena and see other guys define what success is all about. And I think all of us are smart enough now, that's why you're here, to know that the best definition for spiritual success is going to be found in the Bible. And the person we're going to learn about that from is going to be the Lord. But he is speaking to someone who perhaps has reached the pinnacle of earthly success in religion, politics, government, and leadership of a nation. So with all of that, he's already speaking to a successful person and he's really implying by what he says, you're not very successful and here's what you need in order to be spiritually successful. So let's look, if you will, at verse 1 and let's learn some things from this passage. It starts out by saying, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Well, first of all, those of you that are reading this, it's unusual that the Lord puts a name in here. Often he doesn't do that. But this time he wanted to identify who he's speaking to, especially because of the caliber of this individual. So he called him Nicodemus. What's interesting, too, is the name Nicodemus means victor of the people. Now, it was a common Greek name of Jewish people back in those days and others. But I thought, you know, I'm wondering if maybe... The parents were defining the success of Nicodemus because Nicodemus really turned out to be quite a successful individual and they wanted to be a victor of the people. Victor meaning being in control, an influencer of other people, to be able to change lives, so to speak. So all along, Nicodemus was reared with someone defining success for him. Unfortunately, Nicodemus' parents did not define spiritual success. So Nicodemus at least followed his parents' definition but it left him completely empty and that's why he came at night to see Jesus and the conversation takes off from there. Now I've been saying that Nicodemus was pretty successful. Maybe it would be helpful for you to know how successful this dude was. First of all, it says he was of the Pharisees. The Pharisees was a group of religious people and generally there were 6,000 of these. There was a lot more Jewish people, obviously. Hundreds of thousands of Jewish people, maybe millions, but it was 6,000 of these Pharisees. Now these were men who said that they would make a commitment to know the law, to teach the law, to manifest the law in their testimony. They were given to the law. Now these guys were pretty smart in knowing what the law had to say. So these guys are the keepers of the commandments and they did it. Now when they made their vow, they made it to God, they made it in front of friends so that they would be held accountable, that if you wanted to see the law lived out, you could see it lived out through the Pharisees. Well, let's just take the Ten Commandments because they had some challenges with that. With that law, that was how to interpret it. And so one law was, 
Sabbath. You're not to work on the Sabbath. Most everybody hears about that. One of the humorous stories is, is on the Sabbath you could not work. So that means you could not tie a knot. Because if you tied a knot, it generally was for work. So you couldn't tie a knot. But what happens if your water was down in the bottom of the well and you had to tie a rope to the bucket to let it down? So the Pharisees would be searching all this stuff out. And a group of the Pharisees then put together the Talmud. Now the Talmud then would, on one law, write voluminous amount of work to explain not only what the law is, but then how to actually live it out in practicality. The funny part is this, in the Talmud, just on one law, the law of keeping the Sabbath, there's not one chapter, but 24 chapters that are written on this. If you go a little bit further in that writing, you're going to find that there's actually hundreds and hundreds of pages just on keeping the law. Let me go back to that funny story about doing the knot. So the guys knew they couldn't tie a knot on this, but they realized that their wife could tie a knot in her girdle. So they thought, hmm, you can't tie a rope knot to this, but my wife can tie a knot because that's part of life and what she has to do for modesty. So what I'll do is I will take my wife's girdle and I'll tie a knot to the bucket and I can now let the bucket down in the water and pull it back up again. Now I know that's so ridiculous, but I want you to know he was a Pharisee that lived with that. He lived with, and he was willing to die with that. So he was what they call a Pharisee, top of the line of the Jewish people. But out of that group, there was another group that was called the Sanhedrin. Now, the Sanhedrin had 70 men. Now, some writers will tell you that there were 71 in the Sanhedrin. Often, these 70 will go back all the way to Moses' time. And if you remember when they were trying to set up the, the, the children of Israel in the wilderness, he was told to pick out these leaders and put together a group of guys that will help do some of the deciding for Moses. So this was part of the Sanhedrin. So here you have all the Jews. He's now, out of all the Jews, one of the 6,000. Then out of those 6,000, he's part of the Sanhedrin, which means he is now one of the 70. So he's not only just the cream of the crop, he's not only one of the church members, so to speak. He's on the staff. He's not only on the staff, he's on the big pastoral staff of 70. But it goes further than that, because if you go down to verse 10, it says, Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel? Now the Lord could have said, A teacher. But uh, he said, the teacher, implying that out of the 70, he was the one most respected for knowing and then leading the children of Israel in such a manner. So you talk about success, he got to be a part of the right religious sect, he became a leader in the religious sect, and more than that, he became the teacher, which means that he could also control the Jews politically only as far as the Roman government would permit him to do that. So he was politically and religiously the man at the top. So if you're going to look at success, you would say he's finally made it. And he really didn't make it at that time. He was woefully short of it. And that makes this story so much more powerful when you see when it says, you must be born again. So he was the teacher of all this group, the ruler of the Jews. Well, now, after he did this, let's see what happens next. It says, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi. So, first of all, you need to evaluate what is your definition of success. What definition is most important to you? Will it be one that will be a spiritual definition? I hope that it will be. Secondly, you might want to do what he did. He came to Jesus. Now, here it said by night, and I'll talk about that in a moment, but I want to make this clear. Here is the top dog of all the Jews knowing that there could be some peer pressure for him to go see Jesus, who himself didn't go to rabbinical school, but was doing some wild and crazy things and was a Jew, and he's coming to him by night. He came to Jesus. When I read that, I got thinking about people that often come to churches, maybe in America today. They might come because it's the religious thing to do, because Jesus is religious. We know Nicodemus was religious. They're all Jews together, but there's something different about Jesus. A lot of people hear about Jesus, so they go to church on Sunday. They hear a lot of stories about Jesus, a lot of the things that he did, all of that's very, very important. 
But they didn't really come to Jesus by faith alone. They came to Jesus, but they weren't willing to believe in Jesus. They were curious about all of his stories and how he lived his life and maybe want to live like Jesus and act like Jesus, but they really didn't come to the Jesus of the Bible to do what the Jesus of the Bible said to do in order to have eternal life. And so sometimes I wonder how many of you might be coming. I'm not Jesus here. But you're coming to the word that's preached every Sunday. And you come faithfully. And I, I applaud you for that. I urge you not to miss these messages because they all link together. If you leave something out, I can't build on it. But the point of the matter is, you may come to the word. You might even believe that it's truth. But are you believing that it's truth for you? That this is you. You're coming to Jesus for your personal needs of getting to know him, his way, rather than our way. And I hope that we would seek him out. Well, let's go back to the passage. It says here that he came to him by night. A lot of people say a lot of reasons why he might have come by night. I don't know that there's any big reason other than the Lord said by night, so there must be something in there. Some think it was because he's going to go see Jesus. There might have been some peer pressure. Other things, he might have come by night because he was so busy as a Pharisee, he didn't have time to come to Jesus. I think maybe, this is my personal opinion, I think he came by night because there'd be a lot less distractions, a lot less around Jesus, and I can have an undistracted time because something is so heavy on my heart. I'm at the brink of my career. Everything has gone right, but I still feel empty, and I want to know why. And this guy is able to do miracles and say things that, and not ever been to rabbinical school. There's something special about this guy. I need to hear what he has to say. And I don't want anybody to bother me. So I'm coming by night. Now, I don't know that that's the reason. All I do know is he did one thing right, and that is he did come to Jesus. So I pray that if you're looking for spiritual success, you're going to come to the Word of God, which is Jesus in written fashion. And you're here today, so I commend you on that. So I just love you for it. But let's go a little bit further. So it came to him by night, and he said, Rabbi, which is a respectful term, because he looked to Jesus as a fellow teacher. We know that you have come from God as a teacher, but here's why. Not because he went to some great school, but because Jesus did miracles. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, I don't have time to take you back, but go back to John chapter 1 and John chapter 2, and you're going to read, first of all, the miracle of the water and the wine, but then in the passage it talks about all the miracles that he did at that same time. So the noise of Jesus being different was known abroad to everybody. And so he wanted to know a little bit more about what Jesus had to say. So he came to him by night, and he says, and Jesus said, I love this. He then says something to Nicodemus. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He went to see the Lord. Now, I put down in your notes three things you might take from that little dialogue. He just comes to him. He shows up. And he says, you're a miracle worker. You know stuff that I don't know. And Jesus, he goes right to the crux of the matter. And he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That is so huge. Well, first of all, if you will, you're going to notice that in a sense, there was no question asked between verse 2 and verse 3. There's just a statement. I'm here. You do all these miracles, and Jesus already knew what his real problem was. His real problem was a spiritual emptiness in his heart. So now he answers the question before there was a question. You might see that in your notes. And I thought that's pretty cool that he just did that, but that's just Jesus. But do you see the phrase, truly, truly, I say to you? I'd like you to look up here for a moment. Every time Jesus speaks, it's always the truth. Then why would you say truly, truly if he already speaks only the truth? What he's really doing is emphasizing, not only am I speaking the truth, I am affirming the truth that I already am, so really listen to me. What's so interesting is that phrase, truly, truly, is found three times in our one passage today, six times in the Gospel of John right here, because Jesus is basically screaming with those two words, truly, truly, listen, this is important, this is magnanimous, you've got to hear this, you've got to know this, and you've got to believe this. 
And so maybe today God is screaming to you through Jesus Christ. Truly, truly, this is what happens. So wake up, pay attention. Something can change your life. It's vital for you. And then he says, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Well, I look to that and I say, Jesus got right to the point. Now, I find in my own witnessing style that I can be a little fun with someone, you know, joke a little bit with them, make them my friend, hopefully. But I'm one of those that I just want to give them the facts. Most of you know that I'm, I'm a more of a teacher and I want to get right into this thing. But I always goof it up. I, you, when I witnessed to my dad, the first thing I said to him is, Dad, I'm going to heaven, you're going to hell. That's, I was blunt like Jesus probably. But the difference was this. Jesus was driven by a compassion about him. I don't know what his nonverbal communication was. We cannot hear his tone. We don't know how he looked into the eyes, his facial expression. But in some measure, he was locked in on Nicodemus who came to him. He loved him with this supernatural, unconditional, only God can have love for him. So he then could say something like that. We'll call it compassion. And so maybe for some of us, if we're going to jump right in and be straight with this person, make sure that there is a lot of grace and they're sensing the grace with this truth. Now, while I struggle with that, I want to work on that. You pray for me, I pray for you. But I think Jesus had a lot of grace before he gave the truth, although he did not beat around the bush. Let me say this real quickly. Some people give a lot of grace in their conversation with the person that are going to give the gospel to it, so much so that they never get to the point of what is the plan of salvation, and there is a serious need for you to trust Christ. And if you don't, there are horrible consequences forever if you don't trust Christ. So there is something to be said with friendship evangelism, but sometimes there's so much friendship and a little evangelism. So put them two together. I think it will help us out a lot. But notice something else in this passage are the pronouns. Now, this is very important. I don't know what kind of version you have here, but in the Greek, this will help you understand the bigness of this passage of what Jesus is saying. So stay with me. Look at your Bible as I do this. This might help. In verse 2, he says, And this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you've come from God, blah, blah, blah. Verse 3, Jesus answered and said to him, Truly I say to you, so he said to you. He knows that he's representing the Jews. That's Nicodemus. But he says, I'm speaking to you. Unless one is born again, he, meaning you, cannot see the kingdom of God. So while Jesus is concerned for all the rest of the people, he's right now zeroed in on taking care of Nicodemus. Now follow along with me for just a moment here because it's in your English Bible. It's not, you won't find it, uh, you won't find it in your English Bible, what's in the Greek. And here's what it says. Drop down, if you will, to verse 7. It says, do not be amazed that I say to you, you must be born again. Jesus changes it there, and it's in the plural. It's, you all must be born again. So here's what he's saying. Here's what Jesus is saying. All right, he's saying, me to you, Nicodemus, you must be born again early in the passage. Then Jesus is saying, we, all the guys, the disciples now, and me, we know this truth. You all over there, you don't know this truth. What we know about salvation, you all need to know about salvation. So he goes from the you to the whole group that everybody needs it. I like what Pastor Charlie was talking about being in the South and the way they talk there and all that. It's true. When you go up to one person, you say, y'all. When you talk to a whole group of people, you say, all y'all. You know? Well, it's a little different right here. So you, and then we could say, you all. And I like that about the Lord because if you really want to talk about how wide the net of salvation is, while he talks to one, the whosoever will goes very wide because now he's talking about whoever you are, you all need to be born again. And I love that. So I don't want you to think this is only for select people. You all need to be born again according to this passage. Well, let's go a little bit further in here because we are talking about being born again. So the pronoun changes from we to you. But other times he is speaking to a larger group. 
The third area I want to talk about is the fact that you must be born again. I've got to open that up a little bit because we hear about it, but there's so much richness in this. So follow along if you will. Picking it up here, you'll see the phrase born again in verse 3. It says, Jesus answered, and it truly, truly, I say unto you, unless one is born again, he cannot see. Verse 7, you must be born again. If you're at your Bible, you might want to circle those two phrases twice and draw a line between the two because he's speaking twice. But in the context, he is really opening up two separate subjects here when he says born again. The object would be one, you, and then everybody needs to do this is the other. But there's two objects in here. So let's talk about being born again for a moment. Most of you probably know that the Greek word for born again means born again or be born from above. I believe there are some other uh, religions or we might say in the what they call so-called Christian realm, they will use the term, have you been reborn? So whether you say reborn or born again or born from above, I don't know that I need to park an awful lot on that. I think what we need to know is not so much just that word, we need to know the depth of the, of the understanding of it. What he's speaking here is, listen, Jew... Nicodemus, you're not only Jewish, part of God's chosen people, so to speak. You're one of the 6,000. You're one of the 70. And you are the teacher. So Nicodemus could be saying, okay, Lord, now what's the next thing I need to do to add to what I've got here religion-wise? Because you seem to be doing things I can't do. You know things I don't know. Now, it's not said in there, but he's coming to Jesus basically on all these miracles. And you're special. I want to know a little bit more. I'm lacking something here. I want to add to what I already have. Jesus hits it by saying... It's not about how much more you need to know to add to all that. What he says is you've got to start all over. You've got to be born again. So it's not reformation of your past. It's not saying, okay, I'm here and I've got to start new and act differently for the future. You're listening to Make It Clear with the teaching of Dr. Stan Pons, founder of Make It Clear Ministries. Make It Clear is dedicated to taking the Word of God with clarity into every person's world. It is the support of listeners like you who make the ministry of Make It Clear possible. You can provide your tax-deductible gift to Make It Clear online by going to makeitclear.org. Or you can mail your gift to Make It Clear, P.O. Box 607-901, Orlando, Florida, 32860. Thank you for helping us Make It Clear. If you would like to have Dr. Pond speak at your church or event, please send us an email at tellmemore at makeitclear.org. Thank you, and remember to make it clear.